0: This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points. So check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. The room has fallen down around you, the hour late, and somewhere in this house a cold bed waits. For now I know only that I am lost, listening, for the music that will lead me home. From the poem Woman Playing the Lute, written by me, K.B. Marie, and this is the true story of who killed my mother. I was once on the jury for a murder trial. I, morbidly, was really into this, unlike most people who despise the idea of jury duty, because I thought it would give me a chance to see the real-life workings of the crime world I so often rendered in fiction. During the course of the trial, I spent weeks taking copious notes while sitting in the front row of the jury box. I listened to the testimony of the medical examiners, firefighters, detectives, paramedics, and from this gained a clear sense of the chain of command and the rules that govern a murder investigation. This was the second time that the suspect had been on trial for this murder, the first time resulting in a hung jury, meaning that the jury couldn't agree on the innocence or guilt of the suspect, leading to the case's dismissal. The second jury, of which I'd been a part, would also be hung, though I would be dismissed before the final deliberation, sparing me from the grave responsibility of having to decide another's fate. The reason the jury was hung twice, in my humble opinion, wasn't just because the details of the murder were unclear, but also because of the mishandling of evidence and the incompetence of those involved. One example is that the medical examiner had asked for a blood sample from the suspect to match it to the blood found on the victim's black hoodie, and the police simply never provided it. Why? I don't know. What this trial taught me was how solid a case must be in order to see it through to resolution. If evidence doesn't explicitly follow the chain of command, it can't be used. It doesn't matter if it's a smoking gun with a suspect's fingerprints on it, it will be inadmissible in court. Because so much can go wrong, even in the most clear-cut of circumstances, and because my uncle has more than 100 dismissed charges already on his file, I'm left with an overwhelming doubt that my mother's case will ever see court or that justice will ever be served. When I express this doubt to anyone, they always try to counter it. They say, you never know, the universe might surprise you, don't give up hope yet. They insist he should be held accountable for all that he's done, and I agree, he should be. I also know that my lack of faith is just another way to protect myself from more disappointment. Either way, none of it is within my control. Only one thing is, how will I process my mother's death? How will I grieve her? How will I put all of this darkness and despair to rest? What sense will I make of our story? The University of Washington Counseling Services claims that grieving is healthy. By grieving, we're allowed to free up energy that was bound to that person, that situation, and reinvest this new energy elsewhere. Grieving isn't forgetting or wallowing in the past, but realizing the importance of our loss, synthesizing that wisdom into our working intelligence, and hopefully, finding newfound peace, that it's important to remember, grieving is only temporary, but it doesn't feel temporary. I have to say, that right now, it feels like things will be shit, forever. And if I had any doubt that I was grieving my mother's murder, I need only look at the list of grieving symptoms, difficulty concentrating, apathy, anger, guilt, sleep disturbances, loss of appetite, withdrawal, irritability, intense sadness or tears when a memory is triggered, numbness, loneliness or a sense of isolation, and loss of life's meaning. Yet, being the overachiever that I am, I make a grieving to-do list from this research, and outline the steps and activities required to work through my grief. I do the journaling, the meditating, the talk therapy. I try to be kind to myself. I created this podcast as a way to understand my mother's story in a more cohesive way than I ever have before. To make sense of it all, I do everything I can. And yet, when I begin to see any improvement whatsoever, I hit a wall, and the pain comes back, white-hot and unforgiving. It's a voice that stops me, this internal critic says stop crying. get a hold of yourself. why are you falling apart like this? you have to learn how to compartmentalize your emotions. if you can't do that, it's because you're weak. because you're pathetic. you're too emotional. and if you don't get a hold of yourself, you're going to be just like her. unstable. broken. she couldn't overcome her past or her problems and you're going to be the same way. if you're suffering, it's your own fault. it's because you can't pull yourself together. why are you even crying about her after everything she did to you? she isn't worth it. her death isn't the problem. it's her own fault that this happened. This sad, screwed up world isn't the problem either. You're the problem. It's a voice that won't quit. Sometimes it's thunderous. Others more quiet. But it never leaves me. And I know this voice. I know it. Very well. My mother met my father, David No. 2, in 1982. He heard about her because his mother had come home from church and said, Oh, Davy, there's a beautiful young woman visiting our church with her mother and she has the voice of an angel. You have to see her. So he came to the church to watch my mother sing, but by then, she was already dating his brother. And yet this brother who had given my mother a Bible with her name engraved on the cover couldn't compare to the tattooed bad boy who rolled up in the church parking lot on his motorcycle. And within three months of the Bible gift, my parents were married. It was September 11th, 1982. He was 24, she was 19. It was the second marriage for both of them. By November, she was pregnant with me. I don't remember what their relationship was like before he went to prison. I have only a handful of memories from my before time, and of course, I have what I've been told. But in the early days of their marriage, he worked as a building maintenance man for an apartment complex, as well as an electrician. She stayed home with me, and I know that his childhood was also difficult, that he had been physically, mentally, and verbally abused by a stepmother who would beat him, starve him, and make him and his siblings do chores for hours and hours, and if they disobeyed, she would lock them in dark closets, she had been a Jehovah Witness, who'd forbidden the celebration of birthdays and holidays, and that they had been very poor, until by 9 years old, my father had begun working as a shoeshine boy, carrying his box of supplies from bar to bar, in order to make a little bit of money for himself. My father's father was a passive husband, who didn't protect his children from this abuse, and his biological mother was a violent drunk, who once hit him in the head with a frying pan, I'm sure it was for these reasons that my father's hatred for women was already well developed by the time my mother came into his life, yet somehow, she managed to harden this hatred into permanent contempt. I don't know anything about the woman who accused my father of rape. The public records don't list the name of the victim or any identifying information about her, and that's probably for the best, probably for her own safety. Considering it was a second-degree rape charge means that she was either underage, or perhaps she had been unconscious or otherwise unable to give consent at the time. Whatever the circumstances, my mother had been asked to testify during the course of the trial, and she did. When my father spoke of his arrest and trial, which wasn't often, I was given the impression that he blamed my mother for his conviction and his sentence. That perhaps had she not testified, or had said whatever she'd said, he wouldn't have gone to prison at all. Later, my mother would show me a picture of me, one or two years old, tearing into an Easter basket. She'd point at the picture and say, "'That was right before he slapped the hell out of me.'" Apart from the times he supposedly hit her, he often cheated on her, and this was the least of their relationship. Who knows what else happened behind closed doors. This relationship carried on until he was convicted of second-degree rape on August 11th, 1988, just two days after my fifth birthday. During my mother's testimony, did she tell the truth about their relationship and he didn't like it? Or did she embellish his crimes? What that must have been like for her, to have her voice heard for the first time, and with all the pomp and circumstance of a courtroom, after years of being raped by her father, and silenced by her mother, only to now have a full tribunal, a rapt court, willing to listen to her? I can only imagine how that must have felt. Whatever did or didn't happen in 1988, I do know that it is when my father returned from prison. He was released March twenty-seventh, 1992. His hatred for my mother was a palpable experience. The anger coming from him could be felt like heat against your skin. He would show me the custody papers of when he won me from her, as if I was a prize to be taken, a means to hurt her. He was clearly proud of the fact that he'd beat her at this game of who deserves to have our child more. He was never hesitant to tell anyone what a bad person my mother was, but most of all, me. He would tell me that she was conniving, deceptive, a compulsive liar, that she was a nutcase, crazy, a whore. And every mistake that my mother made only solidified this opinion. One summer, he'd brought me to visit her at my grandmother's He'd been out of prison for a year or two, and I had just spent that school year with him. I missed my mom. This had been the longest I'd ever been away from her, and I was excited to see her again. But we'd only been in the house for about 30 minutes, when my father reached out across the counter island and squeezed my mother's arm. I don't know why he grabbed her, but when he did, she cried out. So he yanked up her sleeve to reveal the track marks from the cocaine she'd been injecting, with the help of David Number One the ex-husband who'd been leaning against his car at my grandparents' driveway when we pulled up. Get in the car, Corey. my father told me as my mother began to cry. We're going for ice cream. He didn't let me kiss my mother goodbye or say anything to her before he ushered me into the car and began backing out of the driveway. At the end of the driveway, his eyes still fixed on my grandmother's house, he said, You know we're not coming back, right? I know, I said. Waving to my cousins who stood in the doorway, their expressions sad and confused. But my father wasn't sad for me, nor did he acknowledge how disappointed or heartbroken I was to have my summer plans, a happy reunion, so suddenly dashed. He'd been elated, barely able to control his glee, no doubt bolstered by the knowledge that yet again, he had won. He had succeeded in making her look and feel like shit. Later my mother would visit us in Illinois where we lived. I was 10 or 11 years old when she flew up there to stay with us. We ran into trouble almost from the start, when my father and I arrived at the airport to pick her up, and she was nowhere to be found. After much panicked searching, speaking to the authorities, and gathering what information we could, we finally discovered that she was okay, but that she'd left with another man. I don't remember how we found her, but she did eventually end up at the little Cape Cod house I shared with my father. That night, when I snuck out of my room to check on my mom, she wasn't on the sofa where we'd left her, and there were noises coming from upstairs. The next day after my father went to work, I crept up to his bedroom and found my mother sleeping naked on top of his sheets. I snuck out of the room without waking her, pretended like I hadn't seen her like that, when she finally came downstairs. Almost as soon as she saw me, she began to cry. "'I came here to get back with your dad. For you.' She told me, but I can't do it. I'm so sorry, Corey, but I just can't do it. I watched as she began to pack up her things, including things that didn't even belong to her. Money, clothes, anything of value, anything she could resell for cash. I didn't stop her. I knew she was going to run and that there was nothing I could do to make her stay, to make her want to be there with me. When my father came home from work, found me crying on the sofa, I told him that she left, I don't know if he was mad that i was there by myself or if he was mad that she'd stolen his stuff she's sick he said obviously disgusted with her this is what sick demented people do you have to stop expecting anything else from her Corey. it's hard to explain why i valued my father's opinion so much before my father was released from prison he'd sent me drawings and letters mickey mouse a unicorn. All seven of the dwarves and Snow White painted on what I suspected had been pantyhose stretched over wire hanger frames. I assure you they were more beautiful than it sounds. They were very beautiful to seven-year-old me. I'd hung each of these drawings on the wall of my bedroom, opening his packages with barely controlled excitement whenever they arrived. I think from these limited interactions, these gifts, I had developed an idea of what my life would be like when my father came home from prison. And I was excited for the day, when my life would finally be normal, steady, when I would have a parent, who would be locatable at all times, when I wouldn't have to worry about their physical safety, or if, when they would be back, someone who might be interested in me, and what I do, that I would finally get the care and attention I craved, that I was starved for. Which is to say, expectations were probably unrealistically high, when my father finally came back into my life, and I went to live with him just before my 10th birthday. And it's true that he was very capable of meeting my physical needs. He got me to school every morning. I never went hungry. I always had my school supplies and clothes, my lunch money. When I wanted to spend time with my friends or buy something, I usually could. He funded my school trips, including two international trips, and even bought me a car. When all the kids in middle school had these huge adidas jackets, he got me one too, even though I know they weren't cheap, and he was struggling to get his business off the ground back then. One of my favorite memories is how he would pick me up from school, and take me through the Dairy Queen drive-through, and we would get vanilla milkshakes with whipped cream and nuts. He took care of me when my tonsils were out, soothed me when I cried over a rabbit dying. He made sure that my needs were met, And he was a strong steady presence that i had been lacking but this stability came with a price whenever i excelled or behaved in a way that he approved of it was because i was like him you get that from me which meant i'd done something right but if i did something wrong if i questioned him or refused to bow and be obedient then i was just like my mother his criticism was near constant if i wasn't washing the dishes the way he wanted he would shove me away from the sink. If my sweeping skills were subpar, he would snatch the broom away. If my grade slipped, it was because I was screwing around. If I gained weight, he was sure to comment on it. My crooked teeth were ugly and never white enough. If I had a pimple, it was because I didn't know how to wash my face. He complained about my pigeon-toed walk and told me I asked too many questions. One particularly memorable day is when I was 12 years old My father had picked me up from school and we were almost home. Our home was no longer the two-bedroom Cape Cod that he'd started in when first getting out of prison, but a large multi-level home, four bedrooms, four baths, with a finished basement and thousands of square feet, not to mention the full wraparound porch. His business was doing better, and it showed. I don't know what I did to disappoint or anger him that day, but I sure do remember his response. I think that no matter what you do in life, no matter how well you do in school or if you succeed at all, you'll never be better than your mother. It was like a sword through my heart, because I knew he hated her. I knew that he thought she was absolute trash, the scum of the earth, the epitome of a worthless human being. I had listened to him degrade her for years, so I wasn't confused at all what he meant by this. My father thought I was trash, and he wanted me to know it. This narrative of me as my mother's trash daughter would replay over the years. And with each rebuke, I got angrier and angrier. And I knew the truth of it. That nothing I ever did would convince him to see me as my own person. Anything bad I did would only ever be seen as you are your mother's daughter. And it would certainly never be because of anything he had done to me. His opinions are unchangeable. In March of 2020, months before my mother died, I'd spoken to him on the phone. I reminded him of this conversation on the ride home from school, and I don't know what I expected him to say. Maybe, sorry, that was a shit thing to say, I was stressed over my business, or perhaps even, I didn't mean it. Instead, what he told me was, that was all intentional. When I asked for clarification, he said, I knew how much you cared about my opinion, and I knew it would push you to work harder, to be better. Fuck you, buddy, I thought, but seeing as how I was trying to maintain a semblance of civility and had long ago swore not to let my anger toward my father control me, I said, or maybe I would have succeeded on my own merits, because, you know, I have talent and intelligence, or, no. He cut me off with a resounding, no, no. I was astounded that someone could be so unapologetic about what was an obvious instance of verbal, mental, and emotional abuse. No, he said again. Do you really think that? And it isn't just opinions about me that won't change. When my father found out that my mother had died, he texted me this. I can tell you from first-hand knowledge that she's been trying to kill herself for a long time. It's really simple. Your mother chose her path, and I'm surprised she lived as long as she did. If you live life by the sword, you die by the sword you wield. It's clear that my father will continue to believe he knows my mother, her full story, even though he hadn't talked to her in over 20 years. And he'll continue to believe that my success is because of all that he's done for me. And there's nothing I can say to change his mind. He will never have empathy for my mother. He'll never look at her story her history of childhood incestuous rape, and feel anything but animosity. And he'll look at me, and my continued success, and think that it's because of everything that he's done for me. That his criticism was anything but a debilitating handicap that I have to work every day to overcome. And truly, none of this is my problem. All of this is his work, if he ever cares to do it. But in the meantime, I have my own work. One more big hurdle which is that I am left with his voice in my head, blocking me from my grief. His words and constant disdain from my mom make me afraid to embrace her. By the time I was an adult, my father had me thoroughly programmed to believe that the only way to escape my family's history—the poverty, the violence, the mental illness— was to completely and totally reject my mother, and by proxy, myself but this also meant rejecting the good things that she gave me. Her courage, her great sense of humor, particularly in the face of hardship, her curiosity, her kindness, her musical gifts, her creativity, her love of stories, her open mind, her willingness to accept anyone, no matter who they were and what they had done, her deep sympathy and connection to the pain of others, her resilience, her love of animals, her ability to forgive, and most importantly, her love. I have been rejecting all of the love that she has given me. Because whenever I'm challenged, whenever I feel my most vulnerable and unsure of myself, it's my father's voice that fuels those fears. My father saying, you're not good enough. You won't succeed. No matter what you do, you will never rise above this because you're not strong enough. You will never be enough. But it's my mother's voice that is the antidote. Her words that give me the strength to go on, to get up, to try again. Her saying, I love you so much. You're perfect. Look how far you've come. Look at everything you've accomplished so far. Look at everything I put you through and you're still here. You're the strongest person I've ever met. Baby, you've got this. Don't worry so much. I believe in you. Don't ever give up. It's still difficult, to explore this dichotomous truth that yes, my mother loved me, and yes, my mother couldn't take care of me. That I loved her, but also couldn't save her. But I did have her love, in the shadow of her wildness. I was able to live free in a way I couldn't with my father, a man who consumes all the breathable air around him, and leaves nothing for anyone else. But when my mother said, You're talented you're beautiful. You're everything I'm not. She was wrong. When I looked at her, I didn't see what she saw. I saw her beautiful blonde hair and shy smile. I heard her infectious laugh and gorgeous singing voice. I saw a woman who was fun and funny, who loved scary movies and who would listen to you like you were the only person in the world. A woman who loved plain M&Ms and chocolate ice cream and was the most comfortable in jeans, a cut-up t-shirt, and Jesus sandals. A person who would give the last dollar in her pocket to someone who asked for it. If there's anything to reject inside me, anything to rise above and overcome, it's not the parts of me that came from my mother. If I want to move on, if I want to heal, I have to take these fractured parts back. I must embrace all of her, and all of me. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koy Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir. To be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts, you can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash for just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-release content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.